I've never dealt with this subject the way I'd like to deal with it tonight. It's the closing message. If you're here the first night, if this is your first night, it's the closing message of a four-part series. The little piece of paper that makes all the difference how living together before marriage diminishes life after the vows. We're three weeks in. This is the conclusion. The title of tonight's teaching is Why Obedience is Better Than Sacrifice. The story of four Christians going to the same church. Now, I didn't take the time to frame the first part of that title. Why Obedience is Better Than Sacrifice. Many of you will know the story. I'm just going to give you the the condensed version, all right? Not including all the details. Saul's been given a commandment to destroy the enemy, completely destroy the enemy, all the livestock, everything. He comes back after victory, and he hasn't destroyed everything. He's kept some of the best livestock. Comes to Samuel, and he says, uh, Samuel says, did you obey the Lord? You think Saul would know better than to lie to the man. He says, yes, all has been done as commanded. And Samuel says, did you kill all the livestock? And Saul says, yes, as the Lord commanded. And then Samuel says, what is the bleeding of sheep that I hear? And Saul says, well, I kept some of the best for sacrifice. I mean, we're not a perfect people. We sin. We need sacrifice for our sins. I kept the animals, but not for me. I kept the animals to sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken than the fat of rams. Obedience is better than sacrifice. The sacrifice, of course, was in the old covenant how God covered, atoned for sin. It's not the kind of forgiveness we receive in the New Testament. But it was done in light of the coming, complete, perfect sacrifice of Christ. But still, sacrifice meant forgiveness to Old Testament saints. So what... Samuel is saying to Saul is this. Obedience is better than being forgiven. How? That's what I want to look at tonight. How is it better? Story of four Christians who go to church. Meet Harry. He is solidly involved in a good Bible-based church. He currently teaches a class in the church's weekly Christian education program. Three years ago, I'm sorry, Harry met Sally. (laughs) She too attended the same church. They were both involved in the church's marriage ministry, planning various special events. And after Dating Sally for about six months, Harry knew that she was the one for him. They were just deeply in love after a few dates. 
They were so thankful that they were both followers of Jesus Christ. Nothing unequally yoked here, for sure. Soon after, they were talking marriage. They both knew there would never be anyone else. Because they were already planning on marriage and because the rental market in the urban setting in which they found themselves was so expensive, they decided to move in together. It just seemed to be the logical thing to do. And every day they prayed for their upcoming marriage. And every week they kept passionately involved in their church. No one else needed to know the details of their lives. They've both been Christians for a long time. Sooner or later, though, word got out, and uh, people warned, and people prayed, and as much as churches can do, they were pulled out of some prominent ministries. Church discipline is always easier to read about in the New Testament than to practice in the real world, so most churches just don't bother anymore, and most church members hate it when churches do. I'll sue you. Long story short, which is almost always a lie, they got married. Years passed. They were back involved in the same church. It seemed all the fuss just kind of died away. They proved all the naysayers wrong. If pressed, they expressed regret that they had dealt with this brought their sin to Jesus. The church just needed to get over it because they had repented. After all, it was several years ago now. Maybe they should have been married before moving in together, but God is gracious. Life goes on. They're back involved in the marriage ministry, trying to help other young couples in the church, and they rejoice over God's forgiving grace for their sins. It's a, it's a happy ending. Now meet Larry. He goes to the same church as Harry and Sally. And as Providence would have it, he too, about three years ago, met Patty. Sometimes they would go out on double dates with Harry and Sally, and Larry considered Patty the love of his life. And he too might have moved in with Patty, but for her resolute conviction that God wanted such things reserved for marriage. And now Larry's glad that Patty's devotion won the day. They've been married for about three years, too, and they share in the marriage ministry with Harry and Sally. All of them seem to love Jesus with all their hearts. And here's where this leaves us. Here's the question most Christians don't think about. And even if they offer an answer many Christians aren't sure they could give a reason for the answer they give. Are these two couples presently identical in their walk with the Lord? Now, please don't miss the idea behind the question. I'm certainly not asking if, if Harry and Sally, after repenting, I'm not asking whether they're fully and freely forgiven for their sinful past living arrangement. I don't think there's anything to debate there. Of course they're forgiven. Totally, freely, like all sinners, forgiven. With 
No ongoing condemnation for their past sin. Like any sin, like my past sin, God has removed their guilt, their sin, like the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. And the whole church says, praise God. My question has nothing whatsoever to do with forgiveness. Are the spiritual lives, the ongoing spiritual lives of Harry and Sally, are they affected or are they unaffected by their freely forgiven past living arrangement? We sometimes sing a chorus that says, because of Jesus' grace, quote, my sins don't matter anymore. Is that true? They're forgiven for sure. But are they then totally insignificant? Does it matter that I ever committed them? And when you say those sins don't matter anymore, do you mean the past sins or do you mean future sins? And, and is it just possible, I'm not talking about forgiveness here, is it just possible there's more of a relationship between past sins and future ones than we frequently want to think about? It's not a light question. And disciples of Jesus need to be able to do more than just equate the entire Christian life with forgiveness. Conversion is not the whole Christian experience. And what I want to look at for a little while tonight is how sin is experienced in different heart types. What's the relationship between sin, forgiveness, ongoing obedience and purity, and safety from future sin in my walk with Jesus? Because I think those things are more, more tightly tied together than we usually ponder. Of course, all sin is sin. Don't misquote me here. There are no innocent sins. All sins grieve the Holy Spirit. All sins damage the soul. All sins need forgiveness. But not all sins, here's what I want to say tonight, not all sins damage all hearts exactly the same way. And there's a reason for that. So follow me. I'm going to talk about five different responses to the process of temptation and sin and how they affect the person experiencing them. All right? Is that okay? <clears throat> One. All sin is sinful, but not all sin is experienced in the same way in terms of its ongoing bondage. So now, consider the process. The process in the experience of sinful desire... And the different effects it has depending on our reaction to it. I can think of several different responses to the experience of temptation and the presence of sinful actions. Here are some. A. First, there's the time when the inward desire to sin is just quickly rejected. So in this situation, no sin is actually committed. 
This is the disciple who has somehow learned the value. Oh, others mocked him for it. But this disciple learned the value of a really drastic, pronounced, sharp, instantaneous repudiation of the first inclinations to compromise and spiritual deception. No sin was committed, but the process to spiritual decline was initiated. And and the important point here is the immediate rejection of that first impulse towards sin. That first rejection affected the disciple positively for future temptations to sin. Even if he isn't aware of the theology of sanctification, he or she is now safer from future deviations and future compromises from holiness that are still totally unseen, but he will face those better because of his sharp rejection of this present desire to sin. It will affect the way he responds down the road to other temptations. What I'm saying is, all resistance to sin strengthens for the future. All compromise with sin, even though forgiven, weakens the response to future temptations to sin. So there's case study number one. There's a person, maybe upbringing, maybe just past victories over sin, but the temptation comes and it's just chopping off the hand, plucking out the eye. No, absolutely not. Away. Nothing to do with it. That will make that person stronger down the road. Here's a different situation. Here's a situation, B, where the inward desire to sin is entertained. Still no action is committed. But there's a different kind of heart here from example number one. There isn't the same kind of uh, polar opposite. That pushback to sinful desire. So even though, as of yet... No sinful action outwardly has been committed. The chances of uncompromised purity being sustained are greatly diminished. The odds aren't good for this person. And so immediately we stop and we say, so why? Just this far down the road. Example number one with that instantaneous, firm repudiation of desire... Case number two, where it's just something lingering in the mind. What's the difference? Where did that come from, that difference? How come this person didn't react as strongly and as quickly as this person? Is it just heads or tails? Luck? No, the answer lies elsewhere. This person who just began to entertain those desires somewhere in the past habits of life, spiritual desire has been diluted. 
And the point I want to make is no lights flashed, no warning buzzers sounded, no one forced this person to spend less time at the movies and more time in God's Word. They just drifted that way. No one forced this person to turn off all the sitcoms mocking sexual purity. And he or she just got used to the moral atmosphere that he chose to breathe. Probably started to go to church a little bit less. Wasn't robbing banks or cursing or... The point here is this, even though nothing drastic or self-announcing seemed to be happening, something was happening. It always does. And the desire to sin, even before acted upon, it can't possibly seem as repulsive to that kind of dulled heart. So, in the exact opposite to the first example of sinful desire immediately rejected... And life becoming safer against future sin. In this second example, even if he's fortunate enough, fortunate enough to dance around the actual act of sin, he is getting less and less protected from future sin. Everybody understand what I'm saying? He's getting less and less protected. He hasn't sinned yet, not outwardly. But his odds are increasing. He doesn't know that yet. He will sit and listen to people do studies like this, and and not out loud, of course, because it's impolite. He'll just think, you guys just are so out of touch with the real world. Note, while all sin is sinful, I'm not denying that, These two people down the road, these two Christians who go to the same church, are not going to experience the process of future temptation equally. Now, what about when we move beyond the desire level, these first two examples? What about when sinful actions take place? Can can the process of sin be different? The same sin. The same act. Can it be experienced differently by different types of Christians? Please remember, we're not debating whether or not these actions are sinful. They are sinful. All sin brings guilt before a holy God. All sin demands deep repentance. What we're considering now is something else. What we're considering now is the different kinds of damage sin does to different types of hearts. And some sinners are some sinners, some Christian sinners, more protected and prepared for divine grace than others. Do some find divine light in the darkness of sin sooner than others? And if so, what causes that difference? So, here's another example. C. There are devout hearts that sin... Experience the sting of quick, sharp conviction and are totally broken in shame. 
coming to rapid repentance. This is important. This person doesn't repent because his sin was discovered. Everybody repents when their sin is discovered. This person isn't sorry for his sin because his wife threatened to leave him. This person isn't sorry for his sin because he can't be on the pastoral staff or sing in the choir or serve on the board or usher in the church. He's lost face with people and he feels terrible about it. That's not what bothers this person most. No. Because of his sin, his heart is experiencing something new, something foreign, and and he can't stand it. He feels, here's a person who feels a Christian. He sinned and he feels distance from Father God. He, He feels a spiritual separation and he can't live with it. He feels the way we all feel when a loved one dies. That's what he feels. The loss must be turning point in the notes. The loss of a precious relationship is suddenly a, it's a source of intense pain and it can't be endured. So, The spiritually broken heart is just relentlessly driven home. Home. I have to go home to the Father. I'm alienated. Not all people, not all professing Christians react like this when they sin. It's a huge difference. And the central point of this teaching, while all sin is sinful, it's the process of sin and the reaction to sin committed that makes an enormous difference in the experience of different Christians going to the same church. Now here's the one I want to talk to for a bit. There are careless, professing Christians who enter lightly into sin, either justifying their actions or more commonly, presuming in advance on God's forgiving grace whenever they come to sense their need of it. I see this a lot. I can think of people I know. What we're talking about in this series. Living together before marriage. I can think of people I know. People who live together. They cohabit. Everybody's shocked. Everybody's stunned. Families can't figure out why. What's going on? Months go by, months go by, months go by. A year goes by, they get married. They get married, they go back to church. They go back to church, they're married. They're back doing whatever they want in the church. They say God's forgiven them. And on we go. And everybody's left thinking, no one says it out loud, but everybody's left thinking, what happened here? And, and, And if they really are forgiven, does what they did matter anymore? My sin doesn't matter anymore. And I want to say tonight, it matters tremendously. 
it matters tremendously. All sin. Even forgiven sin. And that's what I'm trying to show in example D. There are careless professing Christians who enter lightly into sin for one of two reasons. Either justifying their actions. Everybody does this. Or presuming in advance on God's forgiving grace down the road. And sin is always the most damaging when it is one of two things. Either planned or justified. This is just the absolute law of life in the spirit. Harry and Sally move in together knowing better. And after they married, they assumed their sin was no big deal because, after all, it's all in the past. God is gracious. God is loving. God is forgiven. In fact, they moved in together thinking it would be God's job to forgive them later on. Now, please understand, the issue here isn't that God won't forgive. All I have to do is look in the mirror to see where God's grace has been amazingly displayed to the most undeserving. I get it. The issue at this point for Harry and Sally isn't just one of simple forgiveness. The issue is They've done something to their heart that mere forgiveness can't take away. They have plotted their own spiritual carelessness. They have made it much easier to commit additional sins in the future. They sowed something into their hearts that carries over and perpetuates future carelessness. After all, if I just plan this sin counting on God's forgiveness later on, and it seemed to work so effectively, even in my local church, what about this sin? Because for sure, this isn't going to be the last sin they're tempted to commit. Agreed? And so I can presume on God's grace for this one, and then do what I want to do, get God's forgiveness, and then plan my next one. And get God's forgiveness... Because the church believes in forgiveness, nobody's going to get me kicked out of the church for a sin I'm forgiven for. And it all starts to snowball. The effect of sin on the one committing it is largely dependent on the attitude of the heart toward that act of sin when it was entered into. The other variables are exactly the same. God's holiness is the same in every situation. God's grace and mercy is the same in every situation. The commandments are the same. God's word doesn't change. There's no variance in any of those things. The only variable is, what do I carry in my heart when I commit sin? And some people commit sin already assuming... They will be fine because, after all, God is forgiven, forgiving, and, and they've already calculated that into the final result before they even departed from God's will. I calculated on God's grace 
before I ever disobeyed. It kind of canceled it out. It canceled it out before I even made the decision. So what that means is the decision costs zero, right? And it's very hard to resist future sin when you're calculating zero negative effect in advance. What keeps you from sin? Back to Harry and Sally. Remember, the issue isn't whether God forgave them for living together. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I don't want to undo one word of that. All I'm saying is this, that first part, confessing our sins, is not as simple as we like to think it is. It's very difficult to effectively confess a sin that you chose in advance, assuming God's grace would cover it. How do you confess it with any sense of remorse? Where, where do you get repentance? If they repented, God forgave Harry and Sally. The issue here is much deeper than forgiveness. The issue here is, even as they stand forgiven, they can't skate around the fact that somewhere along the way they played with God for a period of time. Forgiveness doesn't remove that, that tendency, that inclination to precalculate grace the next time they're tempted to sin. Yes, they may well have wept and honestly asked for forgiveness. Praise God, I wouldn't take that away from them. But both Harry and Sally made it difficult to sustain that repentant heart for future sins because of the way they already committed sins, justifying their disobedience by banking on grace in advance. That that strategy leaves scar tissue that forgiveness doesn't erase. And here's why this matters so much. E, I said there are five. For professing Christians who drift from a repentant heart, the only option is having isolated sinful actions turn into repeated habits. Please note the way I said the only option. There are no other options. So this is the end result of repeated sinful acts presuming on grace in advance. The, the whole moral, mental outlook becomes unable to summon repentance I'm thinking of Ephesians 4, 18 and 19. Do you have that there? Read it out loud with me, would you? They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's a lot there, but the scary words are, they have become callous. Become. They didn't start out this way. Uh, numb. Numb. Unable to feel. 
indifferent. This is the end result of the tempting option of cloaking sin with secrecy, denial, or pre-calculating forgiveness in advance. The, the capacity to feel guilt. We can easily think of it as something natural to us, and it isn't natural to us. It can be lost to our eternal damage. So, I've tried to analyze. I've not seen this in any book. Um, I don't hear it talked about very much, and I, I, I worked hard getting my head around it. The only one who would know that would be Rini. I showed her months ago. I had a little piece of paper in my office, and I said, see this? These steps. Nobody talks about this. Five stages, or types of heart. Now, we need to know this because sin doesn't, sin doesn't float around in the air. You don't catch it the way you get the flu. It, it tempts. It approaches. It conditions. It lures. It lies. It bribes. It masks. Always filtering its way through human minds. Working against the pushback of conscience, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And all of this matters for my opening illustration of Harry and Sally and their decision to cohabit before marrying. When they eventually married, when they eventually married, and they've got the license and the ceremony, did their past decision to cohabit simply disappear? I mean, it was gone in terms of sequence of time. Did it just disappear? Even if they ask God and the church for forgiveness, and they receive forgiveness, and things are exactly the same as if they had never calculated disobedience to God in the first place, is everything the same? And my answer is, well, yes, they are certainly totally forgiven and clean in God's sight, and they should be considered so by the church. No question about it. But my answer is also no. Things will never be exactly the same. And depending on the way they entered into that disobedience, with full knowledge, presuming on grace in advance, depending on the way they entered into that disobedience, it may be easier to indulge future sins with ease and presumed innocence in advance. For sure. For sure, this much. There is always a connection between past intentional disobedience and future potential compromise. Remember that. There's always a connection. That's why Samuel looks at Saul and he says, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken is better than the fat of rams. Obedience gives you something that forgiveness doesn't. Obedience will make you safe. Forgiveness can only make you clean. Oh, man. Can I go just a teeny weeny bit more? And you guys will let me speak next Sunday still? 
Okay, we're, we're almost done. I just need just a little bit more time. Two. That's very involved, what I was talking about. And that's my bumbling attempt to put some thoughts together that, that don't flow easily in anybody's brain. But this whole complicated process, point number two, is what is simplified in the New Testament and described as the process of reaping what is sown. Thinking of this as the conclusion of this series, how living together before marriage diminishes life after the vows. The sociological experts explain the link between present actions and future ones when it comes to cohabitation and success in marriage. David Popeno. Barbara Defoe Whitehead sum up research like this. Neither of these are, this is not Christian research. Quote, living together before marriage increases the risk of breaking up after marriage. The longer you live together with a partner, the more likely it is that, listen, the low commitment ethic of cohabitation will take hold. The opposite of what is required for a successful marriage. Okay, that's the research. We did two weeks. If you're just here tonight, we did two Sundays with quote after quote after quote after quote. That's just a summary kind of statement. The experts look at the statistics. They look at the data from outside. By that I mean they observe what happens to marriages preceded by cohabitation. They just chart the data. But we in the church, we're still left wondering why. Why past, present, and future connect like this? What force, what invisible cause makes these patterns so sociologically and psychologically observable by anybody and predictable in such mass statistical data? And here's where God's word comes into play. We get to see the master plan. We get to see the creator, the divine explanation for the way sinful choices affect future plans and reactions. And I'm summing up with this text. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So enter God's revelation of the mystery of the choices in this life. And what we're reminded of is our chosen actions. All of them only appear spontaneous and original but that's only the outward appearance of what we do. In fact, my actions today, right now, aren't as spontaneous as I might like to think. God's Word says today's choices grew out of yesterday's choices. That's who you are. You are what you chose yesterday. That's the whole point of Paul's words about sowing and reaping. He's reminding us of the hidden connectedness between what I did and what I will do. 
course, we should all rejoice in the power of grace to break into this cycle and to start a new creation, a new kind of sowing, if we're careful and cooperative with the Holy Spirit. It's not automatic. God doesn't do the sowing. Read the text. We do the sowing. But there's this potential for this new creation, a new kind of sowing, to actually sprout a new kind of future. That's wonderful news. Only in Christ. So without grace, there's no way out of this. But, my closing thought, even divine grace shouldn't cause us to take the sowing of our choices lightly. Grace ceases to function when toyed with or presumed upon. Sin always matters. And the closer you follow Jesus in discipleship, the more sin, all sin, will matter to you. The closer you get to Jesus, the closer you get to God, sin will start to matter to you as much as it did to Jesus as he hung on the cross.